Do you ever feel confused or overwhelmed when you read the Bible? Do you struggle to find relevance in what you're reading or even knowing where to start? Would you like to be more confident in your ability to interpret and understand the Bible? Windows into the Bible University offers the solution for you. Windows into the Bible University offers college-level courses on the Bible and its world online and on demand. Learn from anywhere in the world, even from the comfort of your own home, providing high-quality biblical education for pennies on the dollar. We help you to understand how to read the Bible using the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. The courses at Windows into the Bible University will make the Bible understandable and usable for you. Windows into the Bible University has a catalog of courses available and more being added regularly. We currently have a course on what is the Bible. Our course Windows into the Bible provides case studies that help you to enter the world of the Bible using our four windows approach to biblical understanding. We are adding a course that walks you chronologically through the story of the Bible. We have courses on the parables of Jesus, journeying with Paul through Greece, and more. Coming soon, Windows into the Bible University will have courses taught by other world-renowned scholars and teachers on subjects like archaeology and the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're also adding a course on Paul from one of the foremost authorities on Paul in the world. I'm often asked, Mark, do I have to go to college or seminary to learn how to study the Bible? In my opinion, no, you don't. If you want to learn how to study the Bible and become more confident in your ability to understand it, Windows into the Bible University provides a world-class education with a well-designed, focused curriculum that will revolutionize your Bible reading and study. I think it's better than any Bible education program in the country, and it's just $299 a year. That's a lot different than $50,000 a year for college or seminary. $299 a year for unlimited biblical learning. Go to windowsintothebibleuniversity.com. That's windowsintothebibleuniversity.com. You're listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you struggle to find meaning in what it is you're reading? Do you feel like you're missing out on something that the author intended for you to get? Would you like to be more confident in your ability to interpret and understand the Bible? I'm Mark Turnage. And this is the Windows into the Bible podcast.
Probably one of the greatest experiences of my life was the opportunity to live and study in Jerusalem. And there were a number, in fact, I can't even begin to recount all of the experiences that I had that shaped me. But there were two particular interactions that I had with professors sitting in their homes and hearing these two separate individuals express the humility of learning. The first instance, I was in a seminar at Professor Michael Stone's house, and Michael Stone is one of the preeminent scholars in the world when it comes to Jewish uh, pseudepigrapha and especially Armenian studies. And I'll never forget that this group of us were sitting around Professor Stone and he made the statement, he said, when I read books or articles that you write, I don't want to come across your conclusions or your ideas tucked away in a footnote at the end of the article. He said, have the courage to state what it is that you believe based upon your study and the evidence, but have the humility to know that tomorrow they're going to dig up the very thing that's going to prove you wrong. And I sat there hearing this world-renowned scholar speak about the humility of learning. The other instance was sitting in the home and seminar of the late Professor David Flusser, who by the time that I studied with him, which were the last two years of his life, he had written thousands of articles, numerous books, and invariably, as he would be teaching us over the course of the seminar, he would teach us something that would contradict maybe an article or something that he had written previously in a book. And as diligent students, of course, we had read his bibliography and someone would point out that contradiction, to which Flusser would often respond with, oh, I wrote that when I was stupid, or I hope that at my age I'm still permitted to learn. Both of these individuals, Professor Stone and Professor Flusser, to me represent geniuses in the world of biblical studies. They, they truly are, even beyond biblical studies, they are savants. And the impact that that had upon me as a young student beginning to develop and learn and learn a methodology for study was profound. We talk about on this podcast entering the world of the Bible 
through its physical, historical, cultural, and spiritual context. And by doing so, this will help us to better understand the words of the Bible. That method, which is sound, should lead us, however, to constantly refine and improve our interpretations and understanding of the Bible, meaning we need to have the humility to say, you know what? I thought that. I preached that. I spoke that. I wrote that when I was stupid. And what I want to share with you today is my own journey a bit and use this as an example again of how we should use this methodology of windows into the Bible to better understand the words of the Bible. And that also, it's not something that we ever stop refining and improving. And when we find ourselves to be incorrect, we need to have the humility to acknowledge it. In my book, Windows into the Bible, I address each chapter as kind of a case study for how you apply these four windows into the world of the Bible. And in one of the chapters, I deal with the instance that we find in the Gospels in Luke 20, verse 20 through 26, and the parallels in Mark and Matthew. And this is, of course, where the spies of the chief priests come to Jesus, trying to publicly catch him, asking him, is it lawful for the Jews to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, however, perceiving their craftiness, says to them, show me a Daenerys, whose likeness and inscription has it. They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, in my book, Windows into the Bible, in this chapter, I locked in on this mention of the image on the coin. And I read this in a more generalized statement, give to Caesar the things that bear his image, but give to God the things that bear his image, meaning ourselves. And if I can quote my late professor, Glusser, I wrote that when I was stupid. And so I want to take you on my own personal journey here and actually help you to understand a little bit better what Jesus is doing here. Often as modern readers of the Gospels, we tend to generalize and universalize Jesus's words. We disassociate them from their immediate and historical context. 
we see this already at times even within the gospel writers. Our distance from the historical circumstances of Jesus's world tends to obscure our ability to see that at times, in fact, more often than we would like to admit, Jesus spoke directly to the historical and cultural realities of his day, even to very specific issues. And a few years ago, I was traveling through Italy with a group of Israeli tour guides. I was guiding them through Italy and talking about how understanding ancient Roman culture and Judaism within the diaspora actually helps to understand the New Testament and even their guiding in Israel. And the guide that I had worked with to kind of organize this, this tour had asked me to speak on this passage of rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And among this group was my doctor mother, Professor Esther Eschel. And um, as I was speaking about this, she came to me afterwards and asked me, she said, why does the things that are God's have to be so complicated about being, you know, the image and, and humans being created in his image? Wouldn't the natural reading of this to be just simply the sacrifices? And of course, my first thought was, no, I, I don't think so because of the mention of the word image and inscription. But as I got thinking about it, her question caused me to start answering certain other questions that I had that, where this passage had never fully set right with me. Even my reading of it had never fully set right. Because in Jesus's response, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, meaning, and we'll talk in a moment about the Greek phrasing of this, but meaning the denarius, but to God the things that are God's, it doesn't make sense to read this as image or the things that are created in God's image in light of the accusation that the chief priests bring against Jesus in Luke 23 before Pilate, that he forbids paying taxes to Caesar. And as I started thinking through Esti's question, could the things that are God's not be the sacrifices, meaning that which belongs to God, my first impression was, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because we know in the first century that Jews are sacrificing all the time. And the chief priests are using those sacrifices to establish their financial position. In fact, in Jesus's last week, he is constantly coming in conflict with the chief priests, their scribes, and the Sadducean authorities. In other words, the Jerusalem aristocracy. And they're fighting over the abuse, the economic abuse that this group had in the temple. And so just assuming that this was the sacrifices per se didn't make a lot of sense to me. 
because the chief priests, literally, the sacrifices were their cash cow. Pun completely intended. So to assume them as just being the sacrifices, per se, didn't make perfect sense to me. But then I remembered a story that we read in Josephus. We find this in his Jewish War, Book 2, lines 175 through 177, and it's also paralleled in his Antiquities in Book 18, lines 60 through 62. And it's talking about the tenure of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. And here's what Josephus says. After these events, he provoked a different kind of upheaval by exhausting the sacred treasure known as the Corbanas, the Corban. We'll come back to that term in a minute. For the construction of an aqueduct which brought water from a distance of 400 stadia. Expressing indignation at this action, the crowd surrounded the tribunal platform of Pilate when he was in Jerusalem, which would probably have been at one of the festivals, and kept yelling at him, having anticipated the disturbance, he had mixed his armed soldiers among the crowd disguised in civilian clothes with orders not to attack with their swords, but to beat the rioters with clubs. Then he gave the prearranged signal from the tribunal platform. Many Jews who were beaten perished from the blows which they received, but many others from being trampled by their own people in the ensuing flight. Terror-stricken on account of the calamity of those who were killed, the crowd became silent. Now, a few little details before we dive into this account and come back to the words of Jesus. In a previous podcast, we talked a bit about the career of Pontius Pilate. One of the things that's important to note whenever we deal with Pilate and the chief priests is that the high priest during this period was Caiaphas. And Pilate and Caiaphas's tenure overlapped, more or less running from A.D. 1718 to A.D. 36-37. Both of them served in their respective offices longer than anyone else in the first century. Caiaphas's longevity seems to attest to his shrewdness, his the influence of his father-in-law, Annas, that we also hear about in John's Gospel, as well as his close relationship with the Roman prefect Pilate. When the Roman governor of Syria, Vitellius, removes Pilate from power, he also removed Caiaphas at the same time, which intimates a very close association between these two figures. So what happens in the story that Josephus tells is that Pilate is going to procure what is called the korban. Now, the korban was the money that was given by the people for the sacrifices. Now, according to the rabbinic document known as the Mishnah, in the work of the Mishnah called Shekelim, we are told that temple funds are allowed to be used for civic upkeep like the construction of an aqueduct. But Pilate doesn't just take temple monies. He takes the sacred monies designated for the sacrifices, in other words, 
the things that are God's, the things that belong to God. Now, this story, and several scholars have already noted this, seems to stand in the background of something we find in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. And there we read, there were some who told him, meaning Jesus, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, this event of Pilate mingling the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices, we do not hear about this in any other source, which is rather strange if Pilate sent Roman soldiers into the temple precincts, and while these Galileans were offering sacrifices, had slaughtered them. Josephus, who spills a lot of ink talking about Pontius Pilate, would have surely brought up an instant like that. But what seems to be the case here is that Luke is referencing the incident with the Korban related by Josephus. And what's being talked about, that when Pilate steals the Korban, the money for the sacrifices, this led to a riot and bloodshed. In other words, the blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices is the blood spilled as a result of the issue with the Korban, the money for the sacrifices. And Jesus was apparently aware of Pilate's taking of the Korban and the bloodshed that ensued. Now, the $10,000 question is who gave him access to the Korban? How did he get the money? Now, Josephus says that he uses this to construct an aqueduct. There's no doubt that some of this money went into his own personal pockets. Moreover, when we hear this crowd protesting in Jerusalem before Pilate's tribunal, notice the very strange absence of the high priest Caiaphas and the chief priests of Jerusalem. Who gave access to Pilate to the Korban? It would have been Caiaphas and the treasurer of the temple. Coming back to Jesus' words in Luke 20, 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The Greek of the Gospels for that which is Caesar's simply uses the article ta, which is in the neuter case. That means that the antecedent of the things, meaning has to be neuter, which in the gospel text, that works because the word denarion, denarius, is also in the neuter case. So they show him a denarius, and he says, then render that to Caesar, which is Caesar's. And one of the places where my 
previous interpretation, and I had always had a problem with this, is when he then shifts to talking about the things that are God's, that also remains in the neuter case, which cannot mean or refer back to the word image, which is in the feminine case. It also means that it doesn't refer specifically to sacrifices because the Greek word for sacrifice is also a feminine noun. So it would have had to have a feminine article. But the word in Greek, korbanos, or korban, that is a neuter word. In other words, Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what belongs to him. In other words, taxes. But give to God that which belongs to him, meaning the korban, which the priests had allowed Pilate to expropriate. And understand the situation here. Again, we want to tend to generalize and universalize Jesus's words, but he's actually being very specific and implicating the chief priests who are trying to trap him in front of the people. He turns the tables on them and shines a light on them being party to Pilate's absconding with the korban, which is the sacred monies for God that are set aside for the sacrifices. And he denounces them publicly for doing this, that they gave Pilate access to the things that are God's. In other words, he's saying, fine, give, give Caesar his taxes, but you guys need to give God that which is his, which you gave to the Roman governor. Given the public outcry against Pilate's taking of the Korban, Jesus's outing of the chief priests and their cooperation with Pilate would have been incendiary. He's not just speaking in a general way. He's speaking very specifically. He is targeting the fact that these chief priests who are trying to trap him, to put him in a position where he is seen as a troublemaker, an enemy of Rome, which, by the way, they're still going to accuse him of. See Luke 23. But instead, what he does is in in front of the public, who, by the way, are hanging on his every word. He turns the table, and he shows the chief priest to be in collusion with the Roman governor in absconding with the sacred monies of the temple that were set aside for the sacrifices, the things which are God's. When we develop our aptitude to enter into the world of the Bible through its physical, historical, 
cultural and spiritual context, we need to be prepared to always refine and improve our interpretations and understanding of the Bible. It's a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong process. There are many things as I read the Bible that I, I believe a certain way right now, but there are these questions that hang in my mind. And as I soak in the world of the Bible a little bit longer, as I reread ancient sources, or travel and hike these ancient lands, I need to be open to allow my readings and interpretation to change. Too often, we feel when it comes to the Bible, it's all about getting it 100% right, right out of the chute. And we need to have the ability and the humility to allow ourselves to grow, to reinterpret, and yes, to even say, I thought that, I taught that, I wrote that, I preached that when I was stupid. What matters, however, is that our method is sound. Because never forget that even a blind squirrel can find a nut every once in a while. But if your method is sound, you are set up for a lifetime of learning, discovery, and actually enjoyment. And one final thought, when we read the Gospels, remember, often Jesus was not speaking in general or universal terms. Often he speaks very directly to the events and the culture of his day. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, I want to invite you to rate, review, subscribe, and share. This actually helps us to grow our audience. So again, if you're enjoying what we're doing, please remember to rate us, to review us, to subscribe to the podcast, and to share it with your friends. One other thing I want to encourage you to do is I actually wrote a book, Windows into the Bible. It's available on Amazon, and this book provides case studies that help you to better learn the four windows, spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual, and how those contexts can help you better understand the words of the Bible. So check it out on Amazon, Windows into the Bible, and don't forget to rate us, review us, subscribe, and share. Thank you all so much.
been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.